Amen. Grab a Bible, if you would, and make your way this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs right in front of you. You can grab one of those, page number on the screen. If you want to use an electronic device and follow a Bible app in that way, you can do that as well. But this is meant to be a Bible study. And so we're hoping that you would follow along, believing that God would speak to you this morning uh, by His Word. It's certainly what we're longing to have take place, and so we're longing for that here. If you're joining us in the overflow or online, it is the same invitation. Just because you're there, we, we long, still long that you would open up a Bible, that you'd open it and join us and follow along, and that God would speak to you this morning. Sunday mornings, we're making our way through 2 Corinthians, so we are simply picking up uh, where we left off last time, longing that God would take truth that is found here and connect it into your life. But let's ask Him for it. I'm going to give you one more moment to pray. I'm going to pray as well, and long that we would come in many ways almost in the words of Samuel. Many of you know it when, uh, when, when Samuel's instructed uh, by Eli as, as a young boy and just simply said, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. I invite you to have such an approach this morning that you would just be, God, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening for what you would have to say to me, and we long that you would hear his voice. So let's ask him for that. God, I thank you that you're a speaking God. I thank you that your word is alive and speaking. God, your faithfulness in doing that is unquestioned. You're a God who's moving in power. You're a God who's present. And you're a speaking God. God, we just need to have ears to hear you. I pray that you would give us that heart of Samuel that would say, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. Lord, give us ears, hearts to hear you. God, would you and your faithfulness meet us in this moment, meet us in your word, Show us what you have. God, we ask for your help, that you would make it so, giving us understanding, but weaving this, applying it into our lives as only you can. Lord, please do so. We ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we approach this this morning, I want to begin by telling you a story. It's a story that you may already know, many of you do, Israel, in its early days as a nation in the Old Testament, came to a space where they began to want to be like other nations. They longed for a king. Uh, Other nations had kings up to this point in time. God had just been reigning over them. They wanted a king, and God gave them what they wanted. He gave them their first king, a man named Saul. Tells us of him in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I'm sure you get it, but he's a total package kind of deal. I mean, he looks good. He's tall. I mean, there's nobody who looks more handsome, more rugged, more kingly physically among anybody in the entire land. Uh, Samuel speaks to him and tells him it's going to be their, their king. And they said, do you not see he whom the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the people. So all the people shouted, and they said, long live the king. So excited. Problem was, what he had in looks, he did not have in heart. What he had in external things wasn't what he had on the inside, and so he ends up disobeying, not listening to God, not following him. And so Samuel is sent to confront Saul and tell him, you have done foolishly. 
you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It would have, it would have continued, but it's not going to continue. He says, God is not going to give you this because you won't listen to me. You won't keep my word. You won't keep my commandments. And then he says, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Most of you know this reference is David. Uh, David is a man after God's own heart, one who honored God and lived that way. And God says, I'm looking for that type of person to, to lead in my people. David would be that. He would become God's man uh, into this moment. But they still don't know who it is. They know that there's a man. There is a man, he says, that I'm going to find. But to find that man, they need it. So God sends Samuel and he tells him, fill your horn with oil and go. For I am sending you to, the, to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Hey, go. I'm going to send you to this man, to his household. One of his sons is going to be king. So they do. They consecrate a feast. They have all of the sons who are there come before him. The oldest comes before Samuel. And, and, and Samuel looks at him and says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He sees Eliab and says, man, this has got to be him. He looks like a king. He's handsome, firstborn. I mean, he has everything that, you know, kind of goes into the midst of this. But here God instructs. And he says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I've refused him. I've said no. This isn't going to be the one I want. Don't look at it that way. And then he explains why. He says, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's a profound lesson. It's a profound lesson that invites us to understand God is not the way we are. He doesn't do life the way we do life. He doesn't see it that way. In fact, it would be a profound lesson that would say this is how he's meant to be known and expressed throughout the world. That's where we want to begin this morning. As we dive into this passage, I want that kind of understanding that God is communicating, saying people look at appearances. God doesn't. He's looking at heart. He's looking at that. That realm is where we want to begin because that's actually how our passage begins. Notice it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we pick up where we left off. We're in verse 7 this morning as it starts. And the first part of the verse reads it this way. Do you look at things according to outward appearance? Question to them, it says, are you, are you looking at it that way? Are you seeing things by looking at appearances? And then he begins to explain what they're saying. Jump down to verse 9 for a moment where Paul just writes to them about what they're saying about him. He says, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak, his speech contemptible. Wow. Okay, so this is the attack that's happening at this moment. This is that which is happening in this space that Paul has found himself being just critiqued and criticized. There's a group of people who are up and coming as trying to make themselves the new leaders of the church there in Corinth. And they're like, you know, Paul writes a great letter. But that's about it. You know, 
pretty wimpy when it comes to person, his voice, it's terrible, you know, kind of one of those things, you got a great face for radio kind of deal, I guess, you know, uh, but it's just one of those places that he's like, you know, hey, this is, he's just not a great, he's not a great thing, he's not, he's not the kind of leader that you want, is what they begin to attack into this space. Now, here's our problem. We're joining in verse 7 this morning, but we have taken a little bit of space we, we're going through those verses, and if you're with us, we slowed down and we talked about the verses that dealt with spiritual warfare specifically, and we hunkered down there for a little while. The danger is that we've kind of lost the context. We, we've lost where this began, and so I recognize that, but I want to remind you that the attack that is happening here sounds like it's a personal attack. It's really not. It's a satanically designed attack, which is kind of why we went into spiritual warfare that is against, really meant to separate them from an allegiance and a space with Christ. Yeah, we began the chapter that way, and so I'll put the slide that we were using that week, a few weeks back on there, and you can go back to verse 1 and just notice how it began. It says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ whom in presence and lowly among you, but being absent is bold towards you. So one of the things we talked about a few weeks back, I guess it was probably five or six weeks back now, honestly, um, this attack, it sounded like it was an attack on Paul personally, but it wasn't. Paul is telling us that it's the meekness and gentleness on, of Christ that they're finding offensive, that, that there's this approach about who Jesus is and the way that he came into the world. And the way that he does life for us, that the church rightly done, is always meant to be an expression of him. Always meant to be drawing people to Christ. Always meant to be a place that we find him to be there, to have a controlling ministry. People putting themselves up and reigning in, a, in, in unbiblical authority is ultimately a space that is seeking to get between people. And Jesus. Now, this is really what we're going to be talking about for a little while in a number of ways. It really is the argument from here in chapter 10 to the end of the book in chapter 13. So we're going to talk about this in a lot of ways, but understand this, its aim is this, to make it so that we find ourselves with Christ. In fact, I'll just fast forward to chapter 11, where he says it this way, where Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you to Christ as a chaste virgin to Christ. He uses some great metaphors in there we'll talk more about when we get there, but he says, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm jealous for you. I, I want you to know Jesus. I, I want you to have this relationship with Christ. I want you to be in the relationship with him that you're supposed to be, and I'm worried that somebody's trying to get between you and Jesus. As he goes on to say, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's the aim. That's the aim that's here. That's what we're talking about. And so when he's making this challenge, he's telling us, hey, this is what we're pursuing. We're pursuing this space that is saying, hey, we want to do everything we can not to let anything come between you and Jesus. Well, as we approach that, uh, we notice here again as he begins our, our verse Reading again in chapter 7, he says, Do you look at things according to outward appearance? Hey, quick pause. That first part of it in verse 7, it's either a question or probably a statement. 
I say probably because it's actually a very difficult uh, phrasing in the Greek uh, Bible that the, the, the Bible's written in, translating it into English. And so different translations handle this differently. If you have a different translation than the New King James, you might see that. So I'll just put them up on the screen. So the New King James, the King James, they make it a question. Are you doing this? Are you looking at things through outward appearances? If you have an NASB or LSB or NIV, it makes it a statement. You are <laughs> looking at things through appearances. Kind of same thing, uh, saying it differently. But if you have an ESV or New Living Translation, it makes it more of a command. Now, that's not impossible. We, we could go there and talk about it, but I'm going to tell you, from my opinion, which is just whatever you can take it is, I think probably the, the first five there are probably more accurate. It really is this thing, you're looking at things wrongly. You're looking at things through appearances. You're not seeing the things that God has to see because that in many ways becomes the problem. You guys know this, right? I mean, it's not one of those like things that you've never heard through, never thought through. Appearances can be deceiving. It's one of those things that you've heard probably from childhood on just these reminders that there are things that sometimes if you look on the external, you might totally get it wrong. Like if you, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover, people have told us, and rightly so. Like sometimes you look at something, and if you were just to, to make some judgment, you would look at a king soul and go, man, he's king. And you would be wrong. You would be wrong. You would judge things from a, a, a realm that gets it wrong because what you're looking at, God is not. God doesn't do that. God does not judge by appearance. That's what we talked about from that opening verses that we looked at about in 1 Samuel 16, where he says, the Lord does not see as a man sees. A man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not doing it that way. He's not judging on appearances. He's not, well, we could say it differently. He doesn't play favorites, or he doesn't, he's not partial. It's how he gives it to us in the book of Romans, for there is no partiality with God. God doesn't do that. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't treat one person as uh, having more worth or merit in the midst of it. He isn't that way, and he's inviting us not to be that way. So that's where it begins. It begins with this challenge. It begins with this place of saying, you're probably looking at this wrongly. Like, if you're looking at it this wrongly, we need to correct it. We need to, if you're looking at appearances and you're allowing that to be the thing that, that's getting you wrong, we need to get it right. How do we get it right? Well, let's follow the, the logic. Join me as we are there in verse 7. It says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. He's going to invite us to consider. In fact, I kind of beginning our little points on the screen, each word with that word consider, and it's probably worth just a quick pause and inviting you to understand. It's actually a really powerful word. To consider legizomai in the Greek has the idea of almost an accounting word or a place that you would get a right valuation of things that you would be able to say, um, if you, you know, I don't know, balanced your checkbook, you know, and you did it right kind of deal, you would be able to say, hey, this is what I have. Like, this is what I have. This is, this is true. This is an accurate estimation uh, of value. And he says, I want to, you to, to value things rightly. I want you to have a right consideration. And so he says, the first thing is, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you need to consider this, that everybody else, 
who's a follower of Jesus, is that in the same way. So he, he begins it as a question, right? He just says it there in verse 7. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ. So that's a good place for us to pause. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I am going to ask you to respond in your heart. Do you consider that you belong to Jesus? Are you here this morning and you're like, I, I'm a Christian. I, I, I'm saved. I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Do you consider that you look upon it right now that you are his, that you belong to Jesus? Many of you, most of you probably do. That's a good thing. Nothing against that. Don't feel like that's coming in kind of in a weird way. He just says it this way. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is or he belongs to Jesus, let him consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ, that the same way that you are saved, everyone is saved. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have believed upon Jesus and you are rightly a Christian, and if you understand that rightly, everybody else who is coming to know Jesus comes the same way you do. Christians in Iran, China, Africa, old, young, we all come the same way. I think about it this way, when in the, some of the early wrestlings of the church in the book of Acts, kind of almost a division between Jew and Gentile and trying to understand that Gentiles could get saved, as Peter explains, hey, we believe that Gentiles can be saved. He says it this way. He says, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Like, here's what we believe. Gentiles are saved by grace, and so are we. we, we, we we're coming into the kingdom. We're coming in to know Jesus the same way they are. That's the argument here. That's the space here where he's inviting you and I to see this. And if we can see this, we begin to understand that all false divisions, all just variations, external divisions, they fall flat here. That if we can begin to understand that what it is to come to Christ, that everybody comes in that way and anything that would divide, it's, it's a false division. I think about it this way. It writes in Galatians, God says it this way, for you are all sons of God through faith in, G in Christ Jesus. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. I mean, you're, you're, you're saved, you know Christ, he's, he's that which you have. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Wow. How to say that better? It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to begin to understand that there's so many things that divide our world. But here at the foot of the cross, here when we think about the gospel, none of them exist. If there are divisions ethnically, if there are racial problems, if there are you know, divisions in it, in Christ they're not. Jew, Gentile, Iranian, Chinese, African, American, we come to Christ the same way. There's one. If there are slave or free, if there's rich or poor, if there's people very wealthy and have nothing, we come to Christ the same way. Male, female, we come to Christ the same way. Our worth, our space there is in this place where as we come to Christ, there's this beautiful place of recognizing that we all come into this through faith in Jesus. And we all have that same standing. The danger is we don't always live that out. 
I think about it this way. James would write it in, in James chapter 2. He says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Like we, we, we believe in Jesus. If we believe in that, we shouldn't be partial in the way that we do it. What would that look like? Well, James tells us. If there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings, fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, "Mm, you can stand over there, or you can sit at my footstool. He says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If we begin to, well, to use the terminology, judge by appearances, but we get it all wrong. You know, instead coming into this place where we see and understand that there's this incredible space. There's this incredible space that at the the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ brings us to level ground, brings us to this space where we recognize my standing in Christ. It's the same standing that everybody else has. Let me try to say this in a different way. Maybe it'll help, I hope. So for me, I've been a follower of Jesus. This will be 40 years. I've been a Christian 40 years this year. Pretty incredible to think of God's good work in that. I'm so glad for it. But let me explain this. If there's anything that has been good in my life for the last 40 years, it has been God's doing, not mine. Jesus told us, you know, if you abide in me, you'll bear good fruit, but if you don't abide in me, you won't. So anything that is good, it's not been me, it's him. I hope there's some there, but, it's, but there, there's a space of saying it's entirely him. What does that mean? Well, that means my standing before God is not any different now than it was then. I'm in Christ by grace. I'm in Christ by the the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. I am not now more worthy today than I was then. I'm I'm here in Christ because of Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm in this place because of what he has done. He's done that. And it's true for you as well. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you now have a standing in God's presence because of Christ, so it is, that's the same way everybody else comes in. There, there's not anybody here that's like, well, you know, I kind of had a TSA pre-check, you know, and I got to go in faster and I got to get in better. No, like, like, nobody gets that. Nobody has, has anything that, that gets you in quicker. We all come in and say, no, I'm here. And if there's a follower of Jesus in Iran today or in China or in Africa or in Indonesia or anywhere in the United States today, whether they're rich or they're poor, whether they're, no matter what status they're in, we all come to Christ the same way. And this is this incredibly glorious, incredible good news that is just simply true, whether you believe it or not. Again, I used the idea a moment ago, the goodsum, I would have the idea of recognizing what you actually have. Like if you were looking at a bank account, you actually figuring out what's actually in the bank account. And sometimes, you know, you, you just recognize you were wrong. Here's a place he says, you need to figure this out. Your standing is here. And it's the same standing everybody else has. And if you believe that, it's gonna become very, very effective. Now, I really ought to pause right here and just say this. I just wanna make sure that I hold out this glorious gospel this morning, here right now and throughout this morning, and certainly again, just hoping to talk to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, can I tell you the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is for you? I like the way Paul would say it in the book of Romans, 
for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to save, to salvation. For notice, everyone, everyone who would believe. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can be. This is for everybody. It's a weird space. Sometimes people come in here and you're like, well, you know, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus once I get a little bit better. You know, like, like I have to somehow improve my status, you know, for, for, for me to be acceptable. You couldn't. You can't. There's only one way in. It, it's in Christ. But that's the glorious gospel. He is opening it to you today. He is inviting you into a space where you could know him where you could have this relationship to him, and I invite you to that now and throughout this morning. If that's you, come talk to us afterwards. We'd love to help you understand, but I want to tell you the door stands open to you, level ground to stand with us, and and just this merit is Christ in bringing us into this. Okay, gospel held out, coming back to it. This gospel unity in Christ, it is going to counter lies that whether you recognize it or not are satanic that one of the things that Satan is looking to do is to mess up the standing we have in Christ, mess up this good relationship that we're supposed to have with Jesus. And if you can believe this and recognize this is true, you're going to be protected. You're going to find yourself rescued from some of what Satan's doing that was happening here in the church in Corinth, that is happening in our world today. And if you could just believe this, it's going to be good. It's going to be that which will help you not fall into the lie that is there. So Paul unpacks that, he lays that out, he lays it out for them and tells them, I'm longing for you to know this. If you could get this, it'll it'll keep you from the mistakes that you're about to make or you are making. That said, he then adds to it one other thing for us to think through this morning. He says it this way in verse eight, he says, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Okay, this really is connected, and so let me just do my best to try to help you follow the connection. And wants to talk to us about godly authority, a space where God has authority to be there. It's worth just beginning with an understanding as we think this through that God does do that that there is a space where God raises up what we would say leadership or authority inside the body of Christ. Again, that's how he puts it there in in verse 8. He says, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, notice, which the Lord gave. God is the author of it. God gives it. Why do we need to put this connection right here, right now? Well, in church history, There have been spaces where people have grabbed the first truth we talked about and gone too far. So there have been expressions of churches uh, throughout the last 2,000 years that sometimes would come to this place of recognizing, hey, there's a level ground in, in the body of Christ. Like we all come to Christ the same way. And so they would say, you know what? There are no leaders. There are no pastors. There are no people. We're just gonna we're just gonna show up on a Sunday morning, and anybody who wants to talk can talk. And we're just gonna do. You know, we're not gonna have any authority. We're not gonna have uh, any space because they recognize how often that's been used for destruction. Now, I just want to tell you, I understand what they're saying, but they're wrong. Uh, there is a space for leadership. There is a space for authority, but it is still within this groundwork. 
that the groundwork is that there is a level ground at the foot of the cross. We are all in this in the same way, but God does give authority. It might just be helpful to be reminded right off the bat, it's just not the way the world does it. Kind of that picture between a Saul and a David, where Saul becomes this one that the world would have wanted. David becomes the leader that God wants. That God would say, he's a man after my own heart. I think about Jesus who told it to us this way when the disciples were wrestling with that kind of these issues. He called them to himself and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. He says, you know how this works in the world? In the world, to have authority is to be greater. It's to be in charge. It's to be lording it over, and, and you have those, that, that space of authority. But Jesus simply says, that's not the, how it's supposed to be. Not with you. He says, not among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. He says, you begin to find yourself moving towards this. What God's inviting you into is a place of serving. If that wasn't clear enough, he says it in another term. He says, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Like it comes into this place, it's moving in an entirely different way. Clear enough, but when Jesus talks about it in his own space, it just locks it down. He says, just as the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, here's how it looks. You want to know what leadership looks like? I'm it. I didn't come to be the CEO. I didn't come and kind of, you know, move around in some, you know, kind of Rolls Royce chariot and everybody. He says, I came and gave my life away. I came and loved and served. He says, if you're going to be a leader and it's going to go that way, that's how leadership is meant to be in the body of Christ. Now, he gives it to us in a word that's very helpful, at least to me, I hope to you. Notice it again, verse 8. It says, for even if I boast somewhat more, about our authority, which the Lord gave us, notice, for edification and not for your destruction. I shall not be ashamed. He says, God gives authority, but it's authority for edifying, not destroying. Edifying has the idea of building up something that you're strengthening and you're making stronger. Destruction has the idea of tearing down or being over, and, and it begins to picture it in some different ways. Years ago, I think I was at a pastor's conference and I heard somebody share it and it just, it really worked for me and it's kind of stayed with me ever since. And if it works for anybody else, I'll just simply share the, the simple picture with you this way. When we think about what biblical authority is supposed to look like, it is meant to be a hand that is upholding, serving, supporting, never a hand that's controlling. It's never meant to, you know, biblical authority is always meant to come underneath and, and lift up and, and serve and build up. It's never meant to be this place where it's destructive and controlling and manipulating. That's an unbiblical authority, which is where they're moving. The church there in Corinth is finding themselves gravitating towards some leaders who are exalting themselves, who are making themselves great, and kind of criticizing Paul to get there, and he's simply helping us understand that is not the way authority is supposed to work. This is what it looks like. Again, I love the picture. It's really, really helpful for me. I can only just tell you I hope you feel that. If there is a space that you find yourself looking at, this is a church, or this is your church perhaps, we hope you feel the support, but never the control. We hope you feel, in one sense, an open hand. 
that you know, we'd look at this and say, this isn't ours. You know, this isn't our work. You don't belong to us. If you came to me and said, hey, Jim, you know, I, I feel like God's you know, directed me to another church to grow and serve there, well, then with an open hand, we let you go. It's like, you don't belong to us. We don't control that. But if you're, if you're struggling and seeking to fall away, we would come underneath to do everything we can to help you be what God has you to be. And in fact, I think about, for in many ways, maybe that's clear enough, but one of my favorite passages that picture this is Ephesians 4. I'm going to read a number of those verses with you. We don't have time uh, to go into it in depth. Uh, it may be, as we quickly work our way through this, that you uh, might find yourself thinking, I don't know, maybe it's helpful or not. I just want to tell you, you're really close to my heart right here as we get to these verses. Like when I read these verses, it's like, this is everything I want to be and long to be, and I hope it would be expressed. So let me just kind of put it up on the screen. It's interesting that it begins with the same thing we were just talking about, this level ground at the foot of the cross, this unity that we have in Christ. It says, we're endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there's only one body. And it's one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father who's above all and through all and in you all. It's just one. just one body of Christ. I mean, so here in America and and over in Australia and across Europe, there's one body of Christ. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. And we're a part of that. And so if we get that, we recognize no matter who we are, uh, we come to Christ the same way. We're in this place together. That said, he does provide spiritual authority within his church. He gave some uh, to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And we won't walk through uh, those definitions for us this morning, but it's enough to say there is a space of spiritual authority, of godly authority in there. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I want you to get under and equip them. I want you to get under them and build them up. It's, it's not a control over, it's a space under. What would that look like? It tells us four things that godly edification does. Helps us to grow in Christ. It helps us to mature we, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That is, we get to know Jesus better. Uh, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are maturing. We're growing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so godly authority is that that is supposed to be helping us grow up in Christ and and grow stronger in him. At the same moment, we're to be protected from error, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, which is exactly what we're talking about here in in, in 2 Corinthians. And here's this place, I want to rescue you from the lies that they're just not always straightforward, but they are trying to rob you of what you are in Christ. But if you're growing, if godly authority is working, it's going to do that. On top of that, it's going to help us be an expression of Christ into this world. We're going to be speaking the truth in love. It may grow up into all things through him who is the head Christ. That we're going to be this, that we say, I just want to be that, that represents Christ well in this world. That we'd be those who shine that and show that. And then fourthly, it would be a space where we figure out who we are in Christ and begin to operate and live the life that God made for us, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Okay, that's a mouthful. I didn't recognize that. I've just made your eyes glaze over. I'm sorry. Come back with me and just understand 
hey, this, that's godly edification. This is what spiritual authority does. It doesn't control. It doesn't manipulate. It grows us to be mature, protects us from error, help us to be representatives of Christ in this world, figure out who we are. That's exactly what Paul is helping them understand. And if we get that, it would rescue us from the lies of other things. It would rescue us from, from being just driven away from Christ by allowing somebody else to begin to take his space by lifting themselves into that place. And so Paul is being able to say, hey, that's not what I want for you. It's not what I want for you. Hey, we're going to talk more and more about that in the coming weeks, but it's enough for us at least to get the parameters. That said, it still is an authority that Paul is promising that he will use it if it's needed. Go back and see it. Let's just pick it up in verse 8. It says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, not for your destruction, I will not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. His bodily presence is weak. His speech contemptible. Let such a person consider. Again, that's our, kind of our word again. Think this through. Consider this, that what we are in word, by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul gives an unashamed warning. I mean, he's already done that a little bit. If you've been with us, even in the spiritual warfare section, we talked about this. He's, he's telling us, hey, he's not there. He's traveling as a, as a traveling missionary, but he's riding to the church in Corinth and saying, you know, when I get there, if I have to deal with this, I will. If this is something we have to deal with, I'm going to do with it, and you're going to find out the authority that I have. So let's talk about that just for a quick moment. I mean, not a long space. We could honestly spend more, and if you want to have questions with me, I'd love to talk to you about it, but I want to give it to you simply. What did Paul just say? Is he saying, boy, you're in trouble when I get there? He's, he's not saying he's going to beat them up or, you know, kind of bring in some kind of weird control that would not be a part of what it is. He's offering to be what he just said. He says, I'm going to bring in my authority, which is an upholding authority, meaning that if he got there and they were not in this space, he says, you and I are going to have a talk. <laughs> like, we're going to sit down, and what I am in letters, I'm going to be in person, which what was he in letters? He gave truth, reasoned with him, like, hey, I want to help you understand where you are. Why are you off? What's wrong in this space? And yet it would still be an authority where if it took it, it would have maybe removed privileges. It may, may have said, hey, you're not going to be able to serve, um, it could even go to church discipline if they're going to walk in the midst of it. But that spiritual authority is still an upholding authority. And I could find myself trying to think about a better way to say this. But I think I want to do it this way. And it's going to land for some of you, not all of you. But let's give a corollary, something that's similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's enough the similar that it might help. Parenting. Parenting done well is moving to this type of authority. Again, it's a big picture, and I don't want to bring any condemnation. If you, if, you, if you find yourself thinking, Jim, I messed it up, so sorry, or it, you know, maybe you'd see it differently. But I want to tell you, parental authority begins really with a control. Like when you have young kids, you make all their decisions. Like, you know, you just, you get to tell them what to do, when to do it, and how long, and that's, that's right. But parenting done right is moving to a place that your authority becomes much like this place of spiritual authority. That is, for edification, not destruction. It's upholding, not controlling. Parental authority really gets this way, especially as you kind of get into those teenage years, because your goal is to raise a, a child that would be able to handle life on their own. 
You know, so I remember somebody explaining it to me as a, as a parent of young kids, and they simply said, hey, the moment your kids begin to walk, they begin to take steps away from you. You better help them be able to do that. And, and there's this whole growth of just trying to help your kids be mature. Would to God that all parenting was that way. Maybe yours is, maybe yours was. Um, some parents don't do it that way. Some parents try to be controlling all through their life. And so you get into the teenage years, and they still want to make every decision for their kids. Uh, you have parents that try to live their life through their kids, kind of trying to relive the glory days of high school by controlling every decision their kids make. And, and it's just destructive. It's destructive. It isn't helpful. It doesn't bring healthy kids. It really destroys. But parenting done right, as you get to especially those teenage years, it's much like this picture of authority. We are like, I'm not there to c- control you, but I am upholding. But if you're going to do the wrong thing, it would be the same promise that Paul would give here. Hey, I'm going to bring my authority to bear on that. What would that look like? It would mean that, you know, if your kid, especially as a teenager, is doing wrong, it's like, you and I need to have a talk. We're going to have a little talk, and we're going to try to reason together, what in the world are you thinking? Like, why are you making such a dumb choice? Like, let me help you make a right choice. It might have consequences where you begin to say, hey, as my authority says, I'm going to pull away some of your privileges. Same thing happens in a church. So if we have somebody who's living in sin and we confront them and we say, hey, you're doing the wrong thing, you're living wrong, and they're kind of like, so what? (laughs) We're going to say, well, you know, you're welcome to keep coming on Sunday morning, but you've just lost all privilege. You can't serve. Like we will, you can't serve in any capacity within their church right now. You're living in disobedience. Well, if you continue in that disobedience, we'll say, you know what? Not only can you not serve, we see you as an unbeliever. Please don't take communion. Uh, We're going to preach the gospel to you every week. You still want to come, you can come, but you're living in such disobedience that we're going to treat you that way. And there is even a space that we might say, hey, you're not even welcome to come. That's a spiritual authority that's not controlling, but looks much like good parenting in in the midst of that. So I don't know if that's helpful. I don't know if that's helpful to to think it through in some ways, but that's what Paul is saying. He says, I will parent, I will come into it and give that kind of authority, and that's what's going to be happening in this moment, and he's promising that. Okay, leave that and all of its weird questions that some of you would want to go further, most of you don't, uh, and you can talk to me again if you want to. Let's come back to it for a moment, because here's the problem. It's my problem. Maybe it's not where you are. Here's the thing. Um, I found myself preparing this message And I I think I've taught it accurately. I mean, God willing, I hope so. I think I could take you back through the passage and we talk about, hey, we're not to live by appearances. And and one of the ways we get away from that is recognizing this level ground that we have in Christ. And if we understand that level ground in Christ, we also understand biblical authority, that it's not controlling, it's upholding. Hey, I, I think that's accurate to what's in the text, but I'm wondering how it sounds to you. Again, that's a weird question, but let me kind of say it differently. See, I found myself praying for you guys this week and thinking, you know, I know some of you are struggling. We have people, your marriages are struggling. You're struggling with kids. You're struggling with your health. uh, You're struggling with trying to figure out life. And it's entirely possible that you would come into this moment hearing everything I've said this morning and you might say, maybe legitimately say, Jim, what does this have to do with me? Like, this doesn't feel like it's, it's really that important for my life, but I want to tell you it is. It is more important than maybe you might be aware because our, 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 our enemy, he is destructive. And he is just, he doesn't always play fair. He doesn't kind of show up at the door as if he, you know, knocks on the front door and says, hey, let me just 
Can I ruin your life? You know, kind of would like to, uh, can I separate you from Christ, you know, and so somehow that you would just not make Jesus the most important thing? It's not how he comes across. He comes across in ways that are deceiving, that if we can say it this way, appearances can be deceiving. Sometimes it might look like a good thing, but it's just not. It's just not. And God would say, hey, don't believe everything you see. Don't just, I mean, you should think through, wait, wait, is this, is this really going to go well for me? I found myself thinking about this, and, and I remember a quote that I heard a few years back that simply said, you know, that Satan is playing chess while Christians are playing checkers. Silly little illustration, but it's honestly true. We live our life, and sometimes all we're just thinking about is like the next move, we're trying to figure out this, and Satan is thinking 10 moves ahead. And he's thinking about how to mess you up and, and how to somehow get between you and Christ, and that's a hard thing, but here's God plays 3D chess. Like, he outsmarts Satan. He undoes Satan's things, and that's what he just did here. He's told us, hey, don't do this. Don't go these ways, and if you don't go this way, you're going you're gonna to be rescued from, from Satan's design. So let's just think it through in a simple way. If you can come to the place where you recognize the gospel, and you recognize we all have the same standing in Christ, It'll, it'll protect you. There's a lie that Satan seeks to somehow do that would tell you that you're more worthy than somebody else, that you have a better standing than somebody else, that somehow you have greater appeal to God than somebody else, that you would somehow think more of yourself than you ought to. And the gospel comes in and says, no, you can't. Like, don't go there. I like how Paul would say it in Galatians, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, may it never be that I would come and, and, and say, I am so worthy. I, I, I deserve to stand. I deserve to stand in Jesus because look at all the good I do. Look at the, the amazing person that I am, and I'm, I'm, I'm born into the right family, and I'm the right race, and I'm born in the right country, and I have the right amount of money. He says, if that's anything that you believe, you are wrong. You've got to come into this place as I have one boast. It's Jesus. Jesus. I, 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 it's my standing. And, and if I can believe that, it'll rescue me from the lies that would begin to segment me from the body of Christ and ultimately get between me and my Jesus. Because I just recognized, that's not true. It is not true. We all stand in the same space. It would rescue you. You would find yourself protected and inoculated against some of Satan's lies if you would just believe this. And if with that, you would understand spiritual authority. The spiritual authority is not somebody who's better than you. It's not somebody who's more worthy than you. Somebody who has a place where God raises them up. It's not as if somehow, you know, they have a better standing than you do. I don't. I have no greater access to Christ than you do. I have no greater ability to pray than you do. I have the same standing in Christ that you do, but there is a biblical authority that is there to build up, never to control. But if you find something being controlling, it just needs to go off as a red flag and say, that's not him. Paul would say it this way. He'd write to the, uh, he'd speak to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. He says, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He speaks to the leaders in the church. He says, some of you, some of you are probably going to mess up, and you're going to make it about you, and you're going to draw people after you. You're going to make disciples of you, 
instead of disciples of Christ. That is so dangerous. It is so dangerous. Christian, you're meant to be a follower of Jesus. You're meant to be a disciple of Christ. Where we make a man or a movement an idol, it gets between us and Jesus. It makes that person in in that space more significant. And that's why Paul's going here. That's why he's telling us, hey, there is a biblical authority. Make sure you understand it. It is upholding, never controlling. If you find it controlling, it doesn't look like Jesus. That's what he told us all the way back in verse 1, speaking by the meekness and gentleness of Christ that comes under to uphold. He says, that's how it should feel to you. That's how it's supposed to be. And if it isn't that, its real aim is to get between you and Jesus. And if you just know this, you'll be protected. That's where we are this morning. This is in the space that God is just looking at you and saying, I just don't want anything to get between you and Jesus. It's really, really important. And if you think too much of yourself or you think too much of somebody else, it might be. If you pridefully think you're more worthy or foolishly think your leader or your church is a better church than all the others and we are more spiritual and better, since then somehow you got off base. No, we are one body in Christ and we have this beautiful space and it's all about Jesus. And it draws us to that in effective and real way. Well, that's what he's drawing us to and beginning here and inviting us to see. And I'm so longing that God would rescue you and help in some sense that that would be tangibly effective into your life this morning. So you can close your Bibles, your notebooks. I hope it helps. I hope in some sense that God is working this. But if he is, it's just reminding you, it's just Jesus. It's just you. It's this great place, this simplicity that we have in Christ. This glorious relationship that we have with Jesus that Satan is trying to mess up, that we so plead with you not to let him mess it up in your lives. So with that, we're going to take a few moments. We're going to head towards a moment of prayer. I just want to say one more time, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, maybe this is your gospel moment. Maybe this is the moment you get a chance to see, really, you can come into this the same way anybody else. We invite you into that glorious relationship that is in Christ. But we also just want to remind you now as a, as a follower of Jesus that right now we get a chance to talk to him and just be right on this. So we're going to give you a moment to pray, a quiet moment that we do each week and just longing in this space right now that God would meet you, uh, meet you in an effective way. And maybe it's something that you need to pray for right now in you. Maybe you're recognizing that prideful space or maybe you're putting something in the wrong place. In this quiet moment, would you just get that right? get it focused and right. If, it, if you're looking at this and thinking, I don't see it right now, then own these things. Account them. Consider them true. Allow them to be that which is solid in your life that will rescue you from the things that would deceive you and move it away. So quietly between you and the Lord, would you talk to him? I'll do the same. And then we'll come back and close in worship in just a moment.
God, I bring this to you right now. And I know that you know us. You see us right where we are. You don't see as a man sees. You see the hearts. God, for those that aren't yours, and you see it so clearly, I pray that the gospel would be an open door before them. An open door of level ground they can step through right now. Not because of who they are, but because of what you are. And find themselves rescued because of you. I pray that you draw these to you even now. Lord, help that to be clear and that gospel opening to be present. Father, leaving that with you, I just bring your word before you and I joy that your word is powerful that you tell us it doesn't return to you void without accomplishing what you sent it for. But I confess that in some ways, just wondering how you will work this into every life here and finding its relevance, finding its just help in today. But I believe you can, and I know it's good. God, rescue us from the lie that would separate us from you, thinking too much of ourselves, thinking too much of, of of a man or a movement, that would get our eyes off of you. Instead, just recognizing the simplicity, the beauty of of Christ, of the wonder of who you are. Would you rescue this morning us, your kids, from the lies that would mess us up? You know how to do that. You know where you're doing it even now. But Lord, I know the end. The end is for us to be right with you. For that beautiful relationship, as Paul would talk about it there in chapter 11, this, this chaste virgin being presented to you, that you would be everything that, that we are and all that we need. Don't let anything else rob us from that. Rescue us to it and, and just in your good, wise help. Work in us, we pray. We ask for it right now as we commit all of this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are longing that God meets you. If, again, that's you that doesn't know Jesus and you just need someone to talk with you, we're here. We'd love to talk to you more about the gospel and Christ and just open that door as clear as we can for you. Come up and talk to us afterwards. You need prayer for any other reason. We are here. Make your way up afterwards or just grab somebody around you. This is the body of Christ. Maybe someone just, you want to pray for someone before you leave. We just think that's a good encouragement for you even now. But we want to close right now in worship, so why don't you stand? We're going to just take the final moments and worship the Lord and, 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 and honor Him. I want to just speak a benediction over you. Just a, that you, Benediction has the idea of just declaring who God is, just what He is. And this morning, the benediction that I want to share with you guys is from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, where it simply says it this way. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God make it.